Lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab talk with Laura. Welcome to episode six of Lab Talk with Laura. Today I'm joined by Dr. Brian Monison Olson. Is that how you say it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, who is an expert in molecular biology and neuroscience. His passion is teaching and his role as a lecturer at the University of Massachusetts. His teaching emphasizes independent research and universal design. He's also honors program director for the biochemistry and molecular biology department. His latest project is focused on creating a database of 3D models that students can print and use to explore molecular biology. Also joining us today are his collaborators, Kelsey Hall, who is Assistive Technology Coordinator with Instructional Innovation at UMass Amherst. She's a speech pathologist, teacher of the deaf, assistive technology expert, and certified dyslexia practitioner. Thanks for joining us, Kelsey. Thank you. Also joining us is Dennis Spencer, who is the head of 3D Print Services here at UMass Amherst. Um, he has a bachelor's in fine art from, uh, with a concentration in animation from UMass Amherst. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dennis. Thank you. And coming in as my co-host today is comedian Brian Barganier, who is the host of a public access TV show called Public Access and Chill. Yeah! Thanks, <laughs> thanks for joining us, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so, Brian, do you want to just like tell us about your work and... Sure, yeah. So, so this project actually started because I was teaching an online course called My DNA. Um, and part of putting that course together was uh, Kelsey and Josh actually reviewed uh, my course for accessibility. And I got in a lot of trouble because they couldn't <laughs> access uh, basically anything. Yeah, I don't know. It was yeah. pretty bad. I um, mean, and should we talk about who Josh is as well? Yeah, yeah, really yeah, briefly? yeah. So Josh is, um, he works in the Assistive Technology Center as well. Um, okay. And he uh, does a lot of accessibility testing and work uh, around blind low vision primarily. So okay. we ran his... Uh, coursework through uh, a bunch of tests, and yeah, we could not access anything. This was an online course? Um, yes. Okay. Yeah, and I think Kelsey was expecting to meet with resistance, and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. um, it was great. So, yeah, so, yeah and it was, uh, you know, it, I, I, I thought I was doing the right things, but it's really, I think, kind of easy to, to do uh, things the wrong way, especially online. So, you know, uh, Josh was using a screen reader to, you know, look through things. And, and once it was pretty, a pretty easy fix to make it so that, y you know, he could access the text. But then there was all these images and, uh, you know, molecular biology, uh, you know, is such a visual field. You know, you're looking at protein structures, you're looking at nucleotide structures, and that's kind of how you understand it. And there was, we kind of realized there wasn't really a simple way of fixing this. So we started talking about clay first was actually the first suggestion. Mm. And then I didn't really see how that was going to work. You know, if you, if I can't show it to you, how are you going to make it out of clay? And so, and it just kind of evolved from there. Kelsey had this idea um, to get together with Dennis and start 3D printing molecules. And so we tried to put together the first one, which is just a little piece of DNA molecule, which actually we have here. Um, and it's grown from there. It's actually kind of expanded quite a bit at this mm -hmm. point. We now have three different students who work uh, for us. So uh, Nayana, Tatum, and Matt are all working with uh, putting those models together for us. So we're trying to build that database. And then actually 
Uh, we have two collaborators in physics and chemistry as well. So uh, that's Laura Aldahari and Brock Togerson are actually putting, basically doing the same thing, but for physics and chemistry. Okay. So. Nice. So it's really expanded into other classes and... Yeah, well, so um, I, yeah, I feel like I'm just like name dropping, but the uh, other <laughs> I met those guys through TIDE, which is the Teaching Inclusion and Diversity Education Fellowship. And so they we were putting together a project and they said, you know, this 3D printing thing sounds really cool. Can we get involved? And so we actually just put together a grant and we're trying to put some uh, funds together to expand it. So. Is tied a program at UMass, or is it? Oh uh, yeah, it's through Tefty. So it's through the. Uh, oh, I'm going to screw all these acronyms Teaching up. Excellence. Faculty development. Development. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it's a program through through there. Uh, that's uh, Kirsten uh, Helmer is a, the person running that. So, yeah, it's really neat. Um, all focused. That whole that whole fellowship is focused on making sure that people on campus. Uh, you know, are included, and so this is our effort to kind of do that to uh, allow people who have low vision or are blind to interact with these molecules in a way that we kind of take for granted when we're teaching people who are sighted. Um, and then the, the kind of extension of this is that I think it's, uh, you know, you mentioned universal design when you were talking about who I am. Uh, I think it's really, really neat because I feel like I've studied DNA for a really long time. I know what it looks like. And as soon as we had a 3D print of it and I started touching it, I was like, oh, it's, it's not like I learned something specific about it, but like I felt like my understanding was immediately deeper mm. um, just by being able to touch it, like explore it with a different sense. Um, yeah. That's really cool. So even though you can access the information, like you act, this has actually enhanced your understanding too. Yeah, in a way I that think you, maybe I think you can expect. look at something a hundred times, but and then all of a sudden you touch it and you're like, oh, okay. I, 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 it's hard to articulate. It's like I understand it deeper in a deeper way all of a sudden. Yeah, you're adding like a whole dimension to it by adding it in 3D. But I have a question actually. So you said uh, for the clay, like you didn't know how to go about doing it. How are you able, I guess it's more a design aspect question, like how is, how are you able to tell, how is the printer able to do it, but you're not able to get someone to do it in clay, you know what I mean? Like well, how do you? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good question. So I think, um, I think it would be easy for someone who is sighted to make something out of clay, but if I'm like, you know, you, you, we could actually play this game, right? If you closed your eyes and then I was like, all right, ready? You have one molecule of oxygen and then you have, so you can see like it would be tough um, the way that we actually put these together, the way that we're doing these now, is there's actually all these databases of um, 3D molecules which are meant to be viewed on a computer, but that's fundamentally inaccessible. So we're actually taking them, changing them, and 3D printing them. So in, in many ways, we're not we're not starting from scratch, right? Um, we, oh, okay. we we uh, s we will actually have some models that will be completely from scratch, but right now we're actually just taking what's already out there and converting them from a uh, online uh, in computer version to a 3D print version and so working with Dennis has been really important because uh, I think the f one of the first ones we printed was like <laughs> so creepy. yeah it was not good uh, no. it turned into a giant spider web Ugh, rather it was awful. This, this model that's in front of us is a uh, DNA that has it's a represent represented as a wrapped uh, helix, DNA helix mm -hmm. whereas the other one was not represented that way so it's more like it well one it failed to print for a number of reasons but it uh, just turned into a giant spider web of mm. plastic. Yeah, it was actually pretty funny because I, I gave him two models. So, there, so when you represent um, you know, molecules, there's a bunch of different ways that you can represent them. This, the one in front of us here is called a space-filling model, and so it's, it's very solid. It's supposed mm. to represent what, you know, kind of more what the physical topography would look like. 
Um, and the other one that I gave uh, Dennis was actually a, a kind of a cartoony version of DNA. And I'll never forget, you know, I, we printed it out. It really didn't work. It fell apart. And then Dennis was like, none of these pieces are actually connected. And yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, is that a problem? <laughs> and he's like, yes. <laughs> we it's don't actually have strings with space. <laughs> right, like it's because yeah. right. it's, you know, in the computer, it's fine to like draw things and they're floating yeah, in yeah, space. Yeah. But as soon as they come into the real world, that, that doesn't work. Because the only thing yeah. connecting was actually material that we remove. It's support material because you can't print in free space. And so once we removed that material, it would have just it, fallen apart uh -huh. anyway. Yeah, I actually put it in my pocket and destroyed it. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so I'm thinking of, yeah, there's like those like kind of balls with like bars connecting them. Is that yeah, kind of like, looks like a ladder like kind of? Yeah. Those yeah. kits are incredibly expensive. And I think that's mm. part of this whole project too is we're really trying to find a way for students to access something that's significantly less expensive than that. Right. Um, the idea is to really make kits out of these so that um, people can combine different things together and kind of customize their kits based on their coursework. And then, you know, that will dictate the price and the cost, but really we want to keep it really low cost just so that it has a farther reach as well. So then you would still be using these for an online class and you would say like ship out a kit. Yeah, at the so of the class. And that's part of this too. Is so when you're thinking about um, people who learn differently and maybe are uh, signed up with disability services, um, this could be an accommodation for them just naturally so they wouldn't have to pay for that. It would just be a part of something that they could have to access the class. So they'd ship it to them or you could have access to it in class too. That's the beauty of this is that it's really, um, it has a far reach. And yeah. um, if you didn't have a documented need for it, then the option could still be there for you to purchase it at a really low cost and get it printed wherever, whether it's at UMass or whether it's somewhere else, you can make that choice. And that's a really great thing for students. Yeah, and to be modular too, right? Like, so you want you want your piece of DNA, or you're struggling with a concept. You can have one, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. um, and and the other piece, like even expanding beyond that, is that we're going to put all of this stuff online. We're going to make it all available for free. And the idea is that um, eventually, even we would invite people from outside to start contributing mm -hmm. back into the system, so that we would always uh, kind of just be constantly growing these and improving them. Because, you know, what, like like the first one, you know, was was kind of a mess, and, and <laughs> we're learning things as we go. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I think it'll be really exciting when we get more and more people involved, and it kind of gets like a critical mass. Yeah, that's one of the really nice things about the 3D printing is you can just share a file, oh, a yeah. design file, and anybody who has access to a 3D printer anywhere could print it right 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 and so there's a lot of databases online for printing things um, uh, what one of the focuses of this project is to make sure that it's really closely aligned with what you're trying to teach people okay. as opposed to just being shapes um, so for instance the one that we have printed here so DNA actually is a is a double helix right everyone's used to seeing that image of the double helix right it's it shows up on you things all the time but this, this one does a really good job of showing that basically the backbone has these two separate spaces. One is called the minor groove and one is called the major groove. And uh, obviously you can't see this because it's radio, but there's a big space and a little space. And that, that's, you can kind of clearly see that in this model. But then that, there's lots of other things that you want to learn about DNA and this model is not great for that. Mm. So we're, gonna, we're working on you know, making sure the models have a point. Each of them has a point that you're supposed to take away from when you uh, get to touch them. Okay. And I think as it becomes more complex, what you're trying to teach, 
another concern for this, the overarching um, part of this project is a lot around accessibility. So thinking about if you're trying to teach a concept that's not so easily taught by describing where it's located on the 3D printed object, sometimes you would need something like a tactile marker or mm. some way to indicate where it is and what it is that differentiates it from something else on the model. Yeah. So that's a part of what we're working on different iterations of this is how can we make sure that someone who can't see what we're describing has access to it by touching it and figuring it out. Yeah. So. Cool. So I'm curious, um, Kelsey, you were the one who initiated this whole process, right, by reviewing Partially, the class. Yeah, it was a group effort, but yeah, it started in that. <laughs> in the review. Yeah. So is that a standard part of your job to like go through classes at UMass and review yes. them for their accessibility? Yeah, we do. Um, we, we do when it's prompted to us. Um, so especially with online learning, we have a great collaboration with them um, and online education. Um, so we do a lot of course reviews, especially in that arena. Uh, we look at documents, course documents, audiovisual, um, and just kind of work through, you know, what it, what's going on in this class, uh, what might be inaccessible, and what are some options for creating equal and equitable access, um, or to look at it and redo part of it. Unfortunately, sometimes. Um, so, and then we do that in other areas of campus as well. But we do a lot of workshops, uh, training. For staff and faculty and we also have the assistive technology center in the lower level of the library um, it's in the learning commons and it has uh, quite a bit of technology that supports people to access curriculum or their work day um, so we do a lot of assessments and evaluations and um, and then work with policy as well on campus cool yeah. that's really awesome i think i've just become more aware of accessibility online myself um because like i'm on twitter and people there's like a a check you can basically mark in Twitter mm -hmm. that like lets people access like the description the of your text. images, yeah, right? Exactly. Like, yeah, yep. and, and it's sort of strange that it's like something you can uncheck. Like, is it because yeah. you don't want I don't know like people <laughs> so to be able like to <laughs> access your information? Like, why wouldn't you want that? So check? That's a really great question, actually, um, because we get this question a lot. And one thing I will say is that it's great that you noticed that because it's so important, and a lot of people are unaware of the accessibility features built into social media. Hmm. Um, and a lot of people use Hootsuite, and this is a call out to Hootsuite. They're not accessible because you can't actually add image descriptions to Twitter through them. So we use something called Buffer, um, which you can integrate that feature. But that's important because what's really interesting about alt text, that's what we call it when you add text to a, an image to describe it. Um, not all images need to be described. So if it's not, if it's just decorative, then technically it kind of takes away from the experience of the person who's trying to navigate through using a screen reader to access the actual content of the page or wherever you are. However, um, if you uncheck that box, it's weird on Twitter because it will tell you there's an image there, but it won't give you any information. So on Twitter, it doesn't make sense. But if you're a programmer and you're developing a website or something, there are ways for you to make the image not render to a screen reader. So that can be really important because you don't want it to like trip them up when they're going through the website and there's a ton of decorative images of flowers that have no meaning for the actual content. <laughs> so on Twitter it doesn't make sense but in other situations it makes sense to skip over those images um, but it's it's really weird. Yeah, so you, can you, you know, tag so something as like a pointless image? Yeah, I know. Twitter, can you get on that, this, please? This is, <laughs> my this is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't need to see any of those. <laughs> um, so it really comes down to meaning. Is that image part of the meaning of the information you're trying to relay? If yes, then you should describe it. If no, then you shouldn't. And the description should be really brief. So mm -hmm. 140 characters or less. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I feel like everyone should see someone use a screen reader. I yes, felt like it was really so enlightening to watch someone use it. And I was like, oh, okay. Can I do a shameless plug really quickly? Sure. So through Instructional Innovation, we offer workshops and training on campus for students, staff, and faculty. And one of our trainings um, is about screen reader use. And so it's a really great thing if people go to uh, innovate.umass.edu slash events. We have all sorts of events there, and one of them is that. So people should really come up and check that out because it's, a totally interesting experience if you've never seen it. I've been thinking about that and trying to think about how to make this show more accessible mm. um, for people with hearing loss. Yeah. Um, and it's a little bit of a challenge because it's obviously like an audio-based yeah. uh, program. But I, so I like upload it to YouTube sometimes. I, this is something <laughs> I've been slow on. And YouTube does auto-captioning. Yeah. But I'm like, nobody's really going to want to sit and watch the text of my show go through either. So. Well, the auto and the, I mean the auto generating captions on YouTube are are oh, not so great. Really bad. Um, yeah, okay. yeah. We, oh, it's so is funny. it going to be really? Yeah. It's, 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 it's going to be really funny. Gold, yeah. um, you they, can put it through that as a first pass, but then you want to go back and edit those, or else you're going to have oh, uh, a mess. We yeah. had a situation where we're. Uh, talking about copyright law and yeah. stuff like that with someone in the library for a quilter <laughs> and it made her curse and stuff and it was like she never yeah, cursed during yeah. the talk and oh it, like, so it filled be, in her you, words yeah you really gotta uh, be, you gotta go through it it can be a first pass I always say <laughs> yeah. that like, put it through whatever well, especially when you're in like a subspecialty right so yes. if I'm doing things <laughs> about like I've I've done that I've made like videos about geology so I'm a right. geologist and I've you know the word fault is like becomes <laughs> all sorts of different things you know absolutely um, I really want to talk about rocks <laughs> <laughs> You're like, why doesn't YouTube understand my passion for geology? <laughs> one thing for sure, I think um, r transcripts are so important. So even less um, about the auto-generated captions and things. So um, Josh and I have a podcast on campus called Accessibilities um, through iTunes. And it's really neat because we always put a... Um, a full transcript in our SoundCloud and in iTunes and in Google Play so that it can be accessible to everybody. So that's a really great way to do it too. And it's nice to offer it on those different platforms because depending on the screen reader you use, um, the different platforms are more or less compatible depending. So okay. it's, yeah, it's interesting. Nice. Um, so I'm curious, so are you incorporating the 3D technology into um, the classes you're teaching at the university that aren't online? Um, yeah, I think one of the cool things that we're going to do is, as this uh, progresses, is I'm just going to walk into class with a bunch of these and just pass them out while I talk about things, uh, which I think will be a lot of fun yeah, for the students. Um, and it's something that I've, that I've done in the past, but I did it with those little uh, sets that you build, you know, so you have these little molecules that you put together. Um, and that's fine, but, you know, for instance, I taught a class with 60 people, and we were talking about uh, chirality. And chirality is basically the idea that a, that a molecule can be left or right-handed, basically. It's, it's actually a hard concept to explain, and I'm going to fail to do it. You know, <laughs> uh, and that's the point of the story, is that it's can actually really hard to explain. Wait, can I stop you and mm -hmm. ask, are more of them right-handed, just like people? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's generally not that simple. Okay. Most <laughs> they have to use different scissors. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, um, a molecule will, will be predominantly right or left-handed, but it okay. depends on the molecule. Um, and they actually have different chemical properties, too. But it's one of these things that if you hand somebody a model and say, okay, spin it around, you can see that these two things, although they look very similar, are mirror reflections of mm, each other and okay. not the same. Whereas I can say that to you over and over again and draw you pictures, and it doesn't really... But then if I give you two things and say, okay, make them the same, and you can't, right? You can make them reflections, but you can't make them the same. It's very easy to understand. Problem being, 
that works when you have 20 people. I teach a class with 260. Yeah. So you need um, a lot. You can't pass out two of these very expensive models and say like, all right, share. Um, so with 3D printing, you know, I mean, this one, Dennis tells me anyway that this one's only about two bucks. Yeah, somewhere, thereabouts. So this, this piece of DNA that's right. like, I oh. guess like about the size of a tennis ball. Sure. Is about that's the way to describe analogy. it, maybe. And that's at material cost. That's no, not a retail cost. So right. Just cause. How much would you charge retail? Um, well, it's 15 cents a gram retail, so it would be maybe, well, if it's $2 for a base, then it would be $6. That was really good. Oh, bad. that's really not bad. Oh, no. I mean, for this <laughs> Have you thought about like setting up a booth in the campus center and selling it? Uh, <laughs> oh, we could totally fundraise. <laughs> buy your DNA molecule. Would, would you buy a piece of that. DNA, Brian? Sign up ahead people of time. Mail for your people their DNA, DNA all the time. Tell them what they're buying. <laughs> <laughs> Can you get your own DNA it. 3D printed, or is it not that distinguished? <laughs> I have a very dumb question. How, like, I want to just say straight up, how does 3D printing work? But is it, is there like, a big chunk of something and it chips away at it or no, does it construct it? Uh, this is, so what you're thinking is called subtractive manufacturing. So like a block of wood, you chip away and you create something from that. Uh, this is additive manufacturing where you're actually taking material and creating the object from it and you're not, you're more or less not removing anything uh, to create the object. Um, if you want to think the, kind of like the uh, chocolate bunny on Easter, the hollow ones, mm -hmm. that's how with our printers, that's how we print objects, except for on the interior, there's a support structure so it doesn't collapse. Um, and it's just creating it by layer. Uh, kind of like if you took a hot glue gun, you're heating up the material, putting it through a heating element, and drawing one layer of whatever shape you need, and then consecutive layers are created after that to complete the object. Sweet. <laughs> so as you're the head of 3D printing, yeah. so um, does that mean like most things that are 3D printed you've interacted with or is that something that like um, well, for there's like... There's different types of printers. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the one process I was just describing is called uh, fused filament fabrication. Um, so it's low end uh, desktop level printing. Um, there's other types that I haven't interacted with um, as much, but hopefully in the future I will. So like if I as a student at UMass wanted to 3D print something, could I just like... Oh, show up and be like, I want to make this well, uh, fault model. If you show up, That's we may not be bugs. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend making an appointment because okay. uh, consultations, which we require, uh, can take either five minutes to I've spent like hours with people trying to get their models fixed or what have you. Okay. Um, so make an appointment via our webpage on the Du Bois Library, the Digital Media Lab, uh -huh. 3D printing uh, page. Um, if you have a model, great. If you don't have one and you want to talk to us about 3D printing, you can do that too. We also do 3D scanning. Um, oh. Like I've scanned myself and I made a little statue of myself and my son. <laughs> Why have I oh, never really? seen this? No. Yeah, I've I never seen, seen this. The scanner can scan your whole body? Yeah. Uh, yes. Right, yeah. <laughs> I've actually um, done like I feel like you're holding <laughs> out on us. I know. <laughs> Uh, next time you come by, I'll I'm show you. I'm feeling really upset that I didn't um, know. We could make a complete... <laughs> well, to be clear, I want my own, actually. Oh, no, we can do that. I <laughs> want one of my cats. Can we make a complete miniaturized UMass with every single student? <laughs> I feel like that would be wanna, a really good if project. If you have the budget for it, yes, we can. Only like every five bucks. Every student will donate $5 to create their own action figure. Well, I'd need to make a lot of 30, appointments. 000. Yeah, perfect. There you go. Uh, your students, I, I just have to make a plug for them, because yeah. the students that man the DML and the other uh, supervisors or whoever, I'm not 
not sure about their actual names, but they are so knowledgeable and so invested. And every time we're over there, they're wonderful. So they're great to work with. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you've never checked it out, it's pretty yeah, incredible. Yeah, it's a really it, neat place. You know, this is not, you don't have like two printers. How many do you yeah. have? We you have, have like, well, we own 49. Wow. Uh, we have 46 on site because we've loaned out some printers to different departments and other schools. Right. Um, it's like a factory. So, yeah, we have a, it's a printing farm. Yeah. Uh, okay, okay. So it's good because 3D printing is not yeah. consistent and things break, so it's great to have backups and redundancies. And so It's yeah. a great space for learning. So can I plug the other side of the DML? Sure. Also so cool. besides 3D printing, we also support <laughs> students uh, with video audio production uh, with either equipment or we have spaces like green screen rooms, sound rooms. Uh, we're also getting, we just opened up a VR space that students can experience VR um, and we'll possibly even develop. So, but I mean, time is limited because it's shared for the entire campus. Yeah. But yeah, it is available. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, I actually assigned my students to go to you to make oh, videos. Awesome. Oh, excellent. And it was, I mean, we got such a range because we got people like filming stuff on their phone, right? They're mm -hmm. giving a presentation and it's like this grainy, low quality. And then the people <laughs> who went to the DML, it's green screen mm -hmm. and it's like, they're like Carl Sagan, right? Like, like, <laughs> like, Welcome to the world of molecular biology. You know? Ryan, did yeah. you also, as part of your rubric for grading it, include accessibility so that they all had to close caption their videos? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> but I should. Okay, cool. Yeah. Thanks. These are really, yeah, it's a really great thing to, I think it's easy when you <laughs> have the ability to just, you know, see and hear without any assistance it's yeah. easy to forget that those totally. are important things to include yeah, yeah it's so easy to take this stuff for granted yeah absolutely yeah. and you never and it's hard too especially when you have a class of 200 students who are it's a great opportunity to educate them to think about it and then also in turn if you happen to have a student who's deaf or blind or um, anything like that then they have access to their peers work as well which is also super important um, so it's something that we've been talking a lot about, and I just totally put you on the spot for that one. Thank you for playing along. <laughs> um, but it's that's not common practice at our university to add something like that into their rubrics for grading things, but it would be really neat if that was a component because think of how many students we could be educating about just basic accessibility practice by doing that. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, I, I want to kind of pull it back a little bit just to back to universal design. Like mm -hmm. it's it's that's there's a huge benefit in providing accessibility but all these things are a benefit to everybody right yeah, like yeah. uh you know it's i don't know about you but i watch netflix with captioning mm -hmm. all the time right yeah. it's it's so it's 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 a, another way that people can experience this Absolutely. which you, you you if you're disabled this is really helpful and if you're not it's still really helpful yeah how much how many times i work in really noisy spaces i always put things closed captions on um, and what's really interesting too is just thinking about it um, this woman, Katie Novak, who's an educational consultant for Universal Design for Learning, came up with this um, way to think about universal design and something called differentiated instruction. So historically, a lot of people or instructors, whether it's K-12 or in higher education, think about universal design as really difficult and problematic because when you have a lecture of two or 300 students, um, they're thinking, I have to cater to the needs of every single one of them, um, which is completely impossible. And really, that's more differentiated instruction than it is universal design or universally designed instruction. So um, differentiated instruction focuses more on like an accommodations type model. So that would be supporting each student specifically. Um, so she thinks about it as like a buffet. If you're having a dinner party, right, and you're inviting over 25 people, 
um, and you're taking into account who's paleo, who's gluten free, who can't have sugar, who, you know, whatever, who's allergic to everything, you're not gonna, it would be insane to think about creating 25 different meals for every single person. So UDL should be more looked at as like a buffet. Mm. You offer options and let people create their own plate because the difference in differentiated instruction in UDL is really like thinking about um, you want the student to take control of their learning as well. So UDL offers that, whereas differentiated instruction, you're providing what you think they need to them, and it's difficult for both people. Right. So I think it's a really helpful way to look at UDL as like a buffet, so you're offering choices and allowing students to know what, take what they know about themselves and what their needs are, and then pick from those choices and create something that shows you what they know. Yeah, you're actually making it easier for everybody. Yeah, exactly. You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. I'm joined today by Dr. Brian Monison Olson, who is a professor of molecular biology here at UMass. Also, Kelsey Hall, assistive technology coordinator, and Dennis Spencer, head of 3D print services. My co-host today is comedian Brian Barganier. Let's jump right back into it. So I'm curious, um, I want to turn back to Dennis and ask, like, what's the most fun or interesting thing you've 3D printed? <laughs> um, Besides <what>? yourself. <laughs> I maybe maybe you already maybe you already <laughs> told us, actually. I'm not that interesting. So. <laughs> At least I don't think so. Um, I would say um, there's actually a movement called Enable where there and we printed one of them. It's a 3D print prosthetic hand, particularly directed um, for children. Oh, yeah. But one, because, I mean, while the 3D printing material isn't as strong as other prosthetic limbs, um, we can print ours mm -hmm. for $25, for example, the one we printed. Uh, you get another $25 for the hardware to make it work. And people without digits, what they do is when they put this uh, glove on, or this hand on, if they push their palm outward, it opens the hand. If they push their, close their palm, it closes the fingers as well to operate. Um, so you have a $50 investment for a prosthetic and especially for children because they're going to grow they're going to need new prosthetics and get them fitted mm -hmm. um, all you have to do is reshape the hand model and print it again for a relatively low cost um, and I've seen examples of where people are going around the world taking 3d printers like there's a um, let's see I think it was in Uganda or, or something like that uh, where people were going there showing people how to use 3d printers how to build the models into these prosthetic limbs and giving them printers and you know like I've seen stories where a gentleman lost both his arms due to civil unrest, um, and by the end of the story, he had 3D printed arms, and he was able to feed himself now, where before someone had to feed him. Wow. And it was just, that for me blew me away for 3D printing. I mean, I love printing like toys and tchotchkes and whatever, but <laughs> You've had some really cool stuff over yeah. there. I mean, that and we do have a 3D printed brain yes. based on someone's <laughs> MRI scan. Uh, researcher Aaron Fitzroy, who actually um, is using it for his research, Oh, no uh, way. And it's a one-to-one -one so scale, cool. so it's really cool to just hand it to people. It's like, hey, this is a brain. And they're a little creeped out by it. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say those are the two cool things. that. Yeah. Is it the outside of the brain, or no, is it the, ins the, brain. the internal structure? Um, fully functional. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the brain. <laughs> well, I know there's white and gray matter, it is but it's, Aaron it's what you'd see if, like, if you took the brain out of someone's head. There's oh. no, like, I know there's internal part. I can't remember which one's which. But I don't know anything about brains. 
external area, the brain. I did have somebody try to hand me a brain once, but I didn't take it. You're just on the street? Um, no. I have a friend who's in med school, and she was showing me their anatomy lab, and, and somebody else was working, and they were like, oh, I have a brain right here. Do you want to hold it? And I was like, I'm going to drop it. I know I'm going to drop it. I just can't. But I did touch it, but yeah. Anyway, that's a diversion. I saw someone eat a brain one time. Really? A human brain? Yeah, that's someone a was eating it in this place I went in Louisiana. <laughs> Could you give more background about <laughs> what's happening? That's it. <laughs> you saw somebody yeah, eating a, a human brain? No. Yeah, there was like this oh, dish there that had like deer brain oh, in it. Oh, deer brain. Okay. 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 Oh, yeah. It was like a brain. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know why. That's an important All their things have brains, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was still gross, but yeah. Yeah, no, it was definitely good. They're like, do you want some? I'm like, I'm good. Oh, like, uh, yeah. I grew up in Miami, and so the big thing is to roast a full pig. And so all my friend, all my Cuban friends grew up, and they'd talk about how, you know, cracking the pig's head open and eating the brains. Really? Oh. Yeah, and then the, and then getting to an age where they understood what that was and be like, oh, God. I guess you, know, you have I don't like a natural that. bowl, though, if you just crack <laughs> it open, and it's just that, you know. Yeah, they said it's delicious. About, uh, gross eating things, but uh, I saw someone, yeah, with that, and they ate, like, the eye. Mm. See, oh, wouldn't it be chewy? I, I could imagine I mean, that the brain like would be okay, okay but oh, the okay. eye just would be like really a gross. Gross little thing. Well, it's like yeah. a water balloon. I was thinking like uh, jello. Yeah, because so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've dissected. It's like a gusher. Animals, so. You remember those gushers? Oh, gross. <laughs> Sorry. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it to Kelsey. Uh, so, good. so you've done the 3D printed prosthetics here at UMass too? Um, well, we printed one just as a showcase piece. Okay. Uh, we have the hardware just with staffing and stuff, we haven't actually finished the, the product, so. Okay. Tell her about the TIC. Oh, we are collaborating with the, the TIC lab here on campus, yeah. where people, if they find a TIC, they can send it in, they can, they can evaluate it for any diseases, anything like that. Yeah. Um, so what we're doing, because they want to do more outreach, uh, one of the project parts of the project is 3D printing a large TIC about the size of a poodle. <laughs> Uh, that would also show how the tick embeds itself into a cross section of skin. Oh. So that'd be the other part where it might have like a tablet or something. It's still development stage. Um, so we're having that and then doing some animations for that and showing how ticks uh, quest, which they try to reach out and find something. They just stick their arms in the air and wait. Oh, yeah, I've heard about this. Yeah, like, it's, um, it's great. It's creepy to watch. I actually heard this described. I mean, that all sounds very disturbing to me, honestly, yeah. because ticks are like... I Particularly like the size of a poodle. I I, yeah. I've heard, I I knew about this, but when you described it that way, well, especially I... the <laughs> mouth part that does the actual Ugh. puncturing of the skin is I've never seen it before, and it was okay. it was weird. Um, I've seen close-ups of bugs, but this was definitely. Is distinct. it hard to is it hard to three D print something so big, or is there are there certain printers that no. are designed to for no, printing really large No, we actually our large largest printer roughly goes to it's uh, twelve inches by twelve inches by eight, eight, almost eighteen inches tall. Okay. Uh, you can check the website for specific uh -huh. dimensions for that, but we can do large one single prints, uh, part prints, but also you can assemble the prints after okay. the fact. Uh, like I saw a gentleman actually scanned his wife and reproduced her one to one scale, and it was more like he created <laughs> eight loop blocks and reassembled her. Was that so, here? No, this oh. is. I, Did you contact the police? <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming it was with consent. consent <laughs> so. Okay, so the 3D printed tech. It's extra. It's a poodle-sized tick, and yeah. you can see how it embeds itself. Yep. Wow. <laughs> and possibly talking about like having a cross section where you could uh, pull it out and see the internal organs and see how they work. I'm not. Uh, those are different things we're talking about. Uh, we haven't. 
done any testing to see how feasible it is because again, we're hoping that it can be shared with the rest of the country kind of thing. Uh, so we may have like some kind of tracking system, um, have people like tweet about it, if that kind of social engagement and help okay. raise awareness of these things. Yeah. Um, so yeah. If you printed the ticket, the one-to-one -one scale, I guess it would be pretty boring. Uh, <laughs> well, no, it's still creepy. It makes an impact. That's one thing. I mean, we want to emotionally engage people to really impress upon the, you know, the fact of the risk that they impose. So mm. we really, I've been pushing, especially for like the animation of like just making it gross as possible, mm. but still not being like, you know, morbid like a, you know, grindhouse film or something. So. Ticks are already pretty much as gross as possible, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I no. feel like you don't have to gross it up, right? But, oh, no, but some people, depending on what they've shown, I've seen it seem a little more passive. Oh, okay. What they've shown. Like, <laughs> We're I trying to make like a horror really, movie like, about ticks. Yeah, right. <laughs> Imagine being face-to-face with a tick. Just, just like, go for like realism. Yeah, use that'll this be in enough, the right? VR oh, no. situation. Like, oh, get yeah. Get this going in VR, oh, that's, AR. Dude, that's nightmare yeah. for you. Just surrounded by ticks. I mean, like, we're going to need some support after that, probably for those people going through it. But There's some ethical concerns. Okay, yeah, to support me. Throwing ping pong balls at you. Well, that too. Oh, that's what I was remembering. I did this, like, birding workshop with this guy who was really pumped about ticks for some reason i don't know he was like they're so he cute and he said um, oh, <laughs> and man. he um he was just really passionate about nature but he was like yeah they if you've ever seen a tick up close like they like climb up a blade of grass and they basically like hold on to it with their back legs and then they just like wave Aww. their front legs in the air like waiting for something and to come by yeah like this like take just like waving in the wind and like yeah he had this very positive like attitude about it and i was like that's the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> yeah, there must not be that many people who are pro-tick. That's, uh, I would that's hope not for parasites, Gigi. Yeah, right. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I love nature and I find it fascinating, but yeah, some things don't yeah. really. Especially do. like how bad they are, like around New England and mm. stuff. Like, <clears throat> I have an afro. Like, that's like the most terrifying thing for me, like all the time. Yeah. <laughs> do you do you go for walks in the woods and get? No. <laughs> no, no, I can't go outside. Wear like a wool hat. <laughs> we actually printed a human head, life size, and it took about 109 hours to print. So it's what four days to three days, something like that. Uh, but you have the risk. The larger you get, the more time you print, the more likely failure is going to occur. Because that uh. one print for the 109 hours took us about three weeks to produce a successful print. So that also comes into play, which is unfortunate right now. What goes wrong? Um, because you're heating and cooling the plastic when it's printing, uh, there's thermal stress, and those stresses can cause it to warp. Mm -hmm. um, the printer can fail if there's a jam. Um, so, yeah, just various things like that. So normal printing problems, <laughs> actually. Yes. You still get yeah. a jam even in a 3D printer. Can you imagine, like, hour 107? I don't think Dennis has to imagine. I was going to say, I've, I've lived it, yeah. <laughs> You just want to punch the face. <laughs> <laughs> are there are there any other like classes that you're like really impressed with their accessibility on campus? I don't know. This might be a dead end question. But I'm just curious. <laughs> um, impressed with their accessibility. There that are, are other classes doing interesting things to make um, them accessible like this. Sort of, or is this kind of a unique, really unique project? This is a, a really unique project. I think there are a lot of uh, faculty on campus who really um, want to do right by their students in terms of creating accessibility right from the start. I think some people are, it's really you just don't know what you don't know. So a lot of people yeah. are unaware that this is necessarily an issue or that it could pose a problem for a student. Um, I'm going to probably do a really poor job of explaining this, but um, 
I guess I'll explain. There's this comic, um, I'm going to try to audio describe this, um, of a man. Uh, so there's a bunch of students standing outside of a school, and there had just been a huge snowstorm, and there's a man shoveling um, the walkway, and there's a ramp, and there's stairs. Um, and so he's shoveling the stairs, and there's a few students standing there, and one student is in a wheelchair. And he's shoveling the stairs, and the student in the wheelchair says, hey, could you just shovel the ramp? And the guy's like, oh, I'll do it after I shovel these stairs. And he's like, but if you do the ramp, we can all get up. And so it's kind of thinking about it in that way, that um, when you design for accessibility from the get-go, you're really designing for everyone. And also, a delivery man could come up that ramp, and so could a woman in a, or a man with a wheelchair, a person you know, in a wheelchair or with a stroller or anything like that, walker. So it makes it accessible for everybody. So I think a lot of faculty or instructors don't necessarily know that. And when you're creating your courses, you've already created it. So now it feels like it's a retroactive fix mm -hmm. or a reactive fix. Yeah. And that can be really challenging thinking about that and a little bit daunting. And we understand that. But when you fix that and go back and prioritize and make that manageable, then you don't have to do that again because now you've created this really wonderful opportunity for all of your students. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking while we were talking about that, like we're really lucky to have Kelsey because it's actually some of this stuff is not intuitive. Like uh, I thought, you know, we're talking about low, blind and low vision, and over and over and over again, people would say, "Oh, you could use Braille," and <laughs> this was like this mind blowing thing to me. Her and Josh were like, "Oh yeah, no, we would never use Braille," and I was like. Why, right? Like, uh -huh. why would you not use Braille? And apparently, like, 10% of... It's like 9% of the blind population reads Braille. Okay. So it's low, and that's right, so you can technology. even kind of go down is these it, wrong roads. Is it an like, outdated oh, way of... Or is it... No, <laughs> Braille is a great way for um, building literacy skills in individuals who are blind or low vision. Um, it's a really great uh, way to do that. But um, when you have such a low percentage of people who are actually readers of Braille that doesn't reach a, you know, a large portion of the, that population. So um, I think technology has kind of impact, impacted the use of Braille with uh, text-to-speech and things like that. So not everyone's a Braille user. So instead, tactile markers would be more accessible to everybody in the, in the blind community or low vision community. So it is really interesting thinking about those things because, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've even people have good hearts and they intend to do well, but how many times I've been on a plane with a friend who's deaf or hard of hearing who uses sign language and they, the um, flight attendant gives us a braille menu. And it's so, in, right, oh. it's so interesting. I'm oh, getting wow. some interesting faces here. Um, <laughs> so wow. it is, yeah, you're yeah, like, that was a big misread on that right? situation. But that's happened multiple Literally. times. So it's just thinking, like people are trying their best and they, it's, they're yeah. trying to take the information that they know or that they've learned about people who learn differently or have these different experiences navigating life and try to like kind of just fit it into these categories. And so that person meant well, right. but there was just kind of this miss. And so it's how can we kind of, you know, get um, these different communities involved to educate people about what they need and, and make it more aware and that Braille is really important. But if we're trying to reach this larger population, I know. I'm sorry. I'm just like really hung up on what yeah. a miss that was. That's like, yeah. that's not just like a swing and a miss. That's like you turned oh, around yeah. and faced like yeah. the catcher. Yeah. And you like, just, had, you like, just had to think about for one second. Right? Yeah, I can, it's yeah, it's well, really. And there's the flip side. I remember talking to Josh. I was like, Josh, you know, Josh is blind. I said, you know, do, do people 
speak slowly to you? And he's like, oh, yeah, they shout at me all the time, too, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> there's nothing yeah. wrong with his ears, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even still, even if you're shouting at a deaf person, you're not going to get very far. <laughs> right, so exactly. That's like, not actually the problem. So it's not yeah. yeah, it's really yeah. fascinating. But it doesn't come from a place generally of, like, you know, harm or anything. It's just people are really trying to do what's right, but it's it's really interesting to have those conversations because it's just an opportunity to educate and just build awareness. I actually have a question about the Braille. Um, the Braille. <laughs> um, I don't know if this is true or not, but when I was a kid, yeah. like maybe like second grade, they had a blind guy come in and talk to us. And he told us that at McDonald's, uh, like the plastic lids you put on cups, like the Braille that's on them are like ads for stuff. Oh. Well, um, I am not sure about that. I know, but... it's like super specific, but I was, that stuck with me forever. I was like, hey, McDonald's, that's not okay. Like, Just sneaking I thought it was like Diet Coke and stuff. He's like, no, I'll be like an ad for like something else. What? And I was like, oh. you know, as a second grader, I kind of was like, oh, okay. But then when I got older, I'm like, maybe he was just kind of like... Messing with like, I don't know. <laughs> like, but like, I never, you know, I never really ever got a chance to ask anybody. Yeah, ever. no. Um, so <laughs> I'm not sure about that um, and how that how they'd fit enough Braille to do an ad for something. Usually if you see something, um, and I'm not a Braille expert by any means, but usually it's more of like a tactile marker of some kind to indicate something. Um, so like maybe I would be making it up, but like on a phone, for example, there's a dot on the number five and that exists there because it is your placer marker so that you know where the rest of the numbers are. Okay. So I don't know if there's something like that related to McDonald's cups, but um, this is a great question I can ask someone more expert in this. But this as far as I know, yeah, so. so a lot could have changed. Yeah. So maybe yeah. eBay has got one of those cups that it we just can was so specific purchase. and he was so like upset about it. I was like, why don't we just make this up? But That's so interesting. I've never asked anyone. Okay, well, I'm glad you asked that and I can totally. Trying to wait, raise awareness against McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. They like, me just didn't do it enough. They may have learned their lesson. It's been a while. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm really curious now. <laughs> so you even just like talking about that raised my awareness of like tactile markers. And I was like, is there one on my keyboard? And there yeah. is. Yeah. There's, there's a little line on the, the F and the J. Yeah, and I didn't exactly. even know that. Yeah. So there's a lot of different things like that that are just kind of built into our society um, that has been the work of people who experience the need for these things really pushing and so and you know getting that as part of our culture it's really hard I think the last US census said that um, on the high end it's about 19% of our population has a disability of some kind and that was from 2016 and um, that's a that's a lot of people um, but like also there's variation in that as well so it's it's really interesting to think about these things but if you just walk around outside you're gonna see so many I mean the ramp was in a curb cut where some of the first um, accessibility features just kind of built into our society those little um, you know bumpy things when you're coming up to a crosswalk those indicate that you're coming up to a certain kind of crosswalk and there's different bumps that tell you different things about what type of crosswalk that is so oh, wow. there's like all these little things that you just see every day or you just have as part of society that um, we've built in but people fought really hard for those things um, and there's st it's still a fight so it's right. really interesting yeah I know somebody in my department with hearing loss and she was talking about how there was really a big boom in the 90s with the American Disabilities Act yeah. for like awareness yes. and promotion of making things accessible yep. and that she feels like since then it's really been a backslide and people yeah. don't talk about it and 
it's something that maybe makes people uncomfortable too to talk about and that's like a barrier you have to get over it's like we need to just talk about this yeah. and like not be like ashamed or afraid to do that because Absolutely. then if you're not then you're right. not making besides progress. talking about it i mean i'm just a very curious person in general experience it yeah i spent i actually did a project for a psych class where i put myself in a wheelchair for 48 hours straight and i committed to it like i would my house was not accessible. I had to crawl in through the front door, pull the wheelchair in, that kind of thing. Um, I I was supposed to take a bus, but it wasn't wheelchair accessible. So I, and again, I was committed in, <laughs> in the project, not committed otherwise. Uh, but I wheeled myself three miles home. Oh my gosh. To, you know, but it was like, oh my God, I learned so much. Yeah. I mean, it's not the full experience of someone living with it, like the right. whole, you know, for however long years and whatnot. But it gave you, it gave me a much better appreciation of what people go through, yeah. and having that sympathy and compassion, and just like you know, thinking about other people just in that perspective. way. Yeah, perspective. Yeah, perspective. It's, it's mm. hard to, and it's like these little words I pick up on. Like I'm not necessarily sympathetic because it's a lot of people, and this is a really interesting part of conversation too. When you talk about disability. Um, is that I always ask people, well, what's your definition of disability? And everyone's kind of got something different, but I've always kind of viewed it as, and this is just um, from my personal experience and also working with others who have different disabilities, it's, you know, is it actually, do you have a disability if you're born with it? If that's the only thing you know, is that really, a, I don't know, like, of course, there's like medical reasons why we call it that and everything, but it's really just like a difference as well. And mm. some people in the disability community would agree and disagree. And it's a really interesting thing to talk about, though, because in some ways, it's like more disabling to lose something that you had. And in terms of um, having it previously. And so it's just an interesting topic to talk about, and I wish people would talk about it more. But there's, of course, the word disability has this medical connotation to it that also is attached to the ability to access resources that you couldn't otherwise access if you didn't have that label. So some people are really upset about the fact that they're labeled as disabled. Um, mm -hmm. And so even just the language we use and talk about has a really different effect depending on who you are and how you feel about it. So it's really... It's an interesting conversation. I just said interesting like 10 times, but it really is. I'm emph emphasizing that. Um, so, yeah. I tend to say learning difference, I think, or just or a difference. Joshua said differently abled. Differently abled, like, um, yeah. There's like you point out, I mean, because I've heard that people, are if they're blind, they, their other senses may be a little more heightened because of that. Maybe. To compensate. I don't know. If yeah, that's it, true. I think that's that's personalized, um, okay. and some people might say differently. So okay. it's like there's no consistency yeah. in terms of that, and um, some people are saying some people prefer to say like, yeah, call me disabled, or I don't care about the word handicapped or all of that. But um, there is a, a push for person first language, so you know, a person with a disability, not the disabled person, things mm -hmm. like that. Uh -huh. um, but how we it is so important to talk about it, and I think one of the reasons there's such a difficult um, difficulty with talking about it is because no one wants to be offensive um, and a lot of people don't know what they don't know and it always comes back to that and so it's just being open and trying your best to kind of educate and knowing that you probably won't appease everyone um, and that you're just doing the best that you can mm -hmm. to try to find out more and educate yourself like yeah, keeping going the dialogue through, yeah, open. yeah going through an experience like that allows you perspective yeah. um, which is really important yeah, well, I just keep coming back to the, the, this word in my head is like that there's kind of a privilege associated with it. Mm. Like you, if you don't ever, you can just very simply never think about these things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. If you, if you don't have some sort of disability, it just never comes up at like all. Like the person bringing someone the wrong menu, like not even like. Right. Yeah. 
that person is probably, or maybe had an experience with someone who was blind, but just carried that exact experience over to everything else. And so, yeah, it's really, it's interesting. <laughs> I know. It was, <laughs> that one's still getting We were me. both kind of sitting there a little bit shocked on the plane initially, like, hmm, okay. I'm not sure how to, what we do with this, so. Right. Or like, yeah, like I've flown with somebody who has hearing loss and, yeah. you know, they'll say like, you have to turn everything with a battery off. And she's yeah. like, no. No, <laughs> no I'm I not. I don't have to turn this going, off. Yeah. yeah, actually, my hearing aid is totally allowed on the plane. It's not going to, it's not going to yeah. alter our flight patterns or anything. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I think we're ready to move on to the last part of our show where we play a game that I invented called GTA. Guess that acronym. Mm-hmm. Not Already not what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> and so the way this game works is that we challenge our comedian co-host to guess <laughs> some acronyms. Um, and the reason I created this game is basically I feel like in the field of science, and this is a little bit different today, but um, in the field of science in general, people use a lot of acronyms to communicate, and it can make... It can be a huge barrier to understanding what's going on. So that's, I remember yeah. Tide. Tide? <laughs> tide, nice. yeah. That's good. He said something about Tide earlier. Oh, Not Tide that's Pods, right. though. Okay, <laughs> you totally threw me. I uh, just started this coffee, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and then, so we'll see if Brian can guess them. You just do your best job, Brian. There's no stakes whatsoever. Thank God. Um, <laughs> it's just to make you feel bad. Uh, <laughs> and then our experts it's will jump in and tell us what these acronyms <laughs> yeah. actually mean. Our first acronym is UDL. Sounds like something you need to see a doctor for. Uh, <laughs> UDL. Yeah. This one did actually come up earlier, I'm pretty sure. I want... <laughs> okay, so United Dyslexic. Lumberjacks? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Linguistics? It's a very serious organization. United Dyslexic Lumberjacks. I mean, I hope okay. that exists if they need that, if they want that. Yeah. It's not a they whole should lot of need reading in lumberjacking. I don't know. So want, at least the safety they manuals. They want least. to. That's yeah. the thing. I think it's just it's here. It's in your heart. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Does somebody want to jump in and tell us what that actually means? So that's the universal design for learning. I was close. So that's what you were talking about, that yeah. like buf- <laughs> that buffet style yes, of exactly. learning, like make it just so everybody to, has like, an option that will see them. It. Yeah. Right. That's that's giving everyone the same accommodations all the time. And right? allowing them to direct their learning to choose. Cool. Good stuff. Um, okay, our next acronym is IPSP. <laughs> IPSP. Instant potato uh, salty potato. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Somebody want to jump in and tell us what this one actually means? Is this me? Yeah. You oh. sent it to me, so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you remember what it means. Yeah, I have no, no, no. Uh, IPSP, inhibitory postsynaptic potential. Okay, oh, do you want to tell us what that is? I don't yeah. know what one of those words so, is. Well, this is, like, <laughs> this is like super unfair because we didn't even discuss that. Um, but, <laughs> so I, I'm a neuroscientist, so actually all of my research uh, outside of uh, doing education is all around uh, GABA receptors, which is the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. So basically, your what? brain... <laughs> what? You asked, right? So yeah, I get drunk no, and tell jokes for a living. Let's get, let's get well, into it. Well, and the, the, way, the reason that you get drunk is because you actually activate GABA receptors by drinking alcohol. Wait, and what that are they? Okay, finally, your brain. I'm on the same level. It inhibits your brain, okay. and it slows everything down to the point that you, you know, fall asleep, fall over, whatever. Your brain is literally inhibited to the point that you're, you know, a wreck or whatever. 
Yeah, I still don't get it. What kind but. of what are they called? GABA receptors? GABA. G-A-B-A. Yeah. Okay, see, I'm GABA. bringing my geology uh, bias to this, and I was hearing GABRO receptors. <laughs> I don't know. It's actually gamma aminobutyric acid. Oh, wait, but, so there's an acronym. we call it GABA. There's, there's an acronym, acronym within yeah, so that acronym? A, no, no. Well, well there's a, an acronym in reference to that acronym. Uh, okay. Yeah. See, this is... In an acronym? There's so many acronyms. <laughs> but an yeah, acronym... Like, ca- you needed an acronym to explain the other acronym. An <laughs> See, that went to a good place. So wait, so the inhibitory postsynaptic potential. Yes. That's the fact that, could you explain it again? Sure, sure. So, so, so the, the inhibitory postsynaptic potential, so neurons are connected to each other. The cells in your brain that, that, that you think with are connected to each other. And so a postsynaptic potential means the cell after the synapse where they're connected. So an inhibitory postsynaptic potential would mean that the cell after this one, you're right, our, our neuron A, neuron B is being inhibited by that first one. Okay. And so you can actually, if you were measuring the current in that cell, you could actually see a little dip and a little depression in uh, away from being excited and what the impact of that on the person is well it really depends so um on which in kind the of case of like is. alcohol right okay. so alcohol would have kind of very broad effects throughout your brain and lots of different neurons would be inhibited uh. and sometimes one of the things that that people forget about is that you have all these different connected systems so sometimes um, disinhibiting a system just activates another one. So sometimes it looks like excitation when it's inhibition. Um, but that's that's why I have like awesome ideas, but then I'm also crying at McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. No, that, what those ads that are. Is, that yeah. is okay, good stuff. Yeah, we didn't really get into your research at all. No, did we? no, no. It's okay. it's all right. <laughs> well, it's you too. know it's it, we we were focused on the 3D printing stuff. So yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. We'll start 3D printing GAB receptors. There I have no doubt. Go. We're going to do that. It's yeah, just, right. uh, it's just time. That would actually can you Yeah, that's what we're going to do. Yeah, exactly. Can, tra- <laughs> can you tell us what a GABA receptor looks like? Is it something you Yeah, so I, I can throw out another really, uh, like a $5 word or a $10 word. Okay. It's, a, a, it's a heteropentamer. So uh, <laughs> if you break it down, you know that, right? What did you just call me? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I called you a receptor made out of five different pieces, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So uh, I love that word because it's like, it sound, you're like, what the hell does that mean? And then you're like, made out of five things. I felt things. that a lot today. Yeah, right. Okay, our next acronym is SLP. SLP? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, San Francisco... Pacific, I don't, like, I have no idea. I kind of have Wait, SLP? Yeah. You can do it, you can do it. Scientific Linguistics Practices. Ooh. I mean, like, one aspect of it is sort of correct, in a way. (laughs) Guys, this is the best it's gonna get. (laughs) (laughs) I have a guess, too. I normally create the acronym, so I don't usually guess. But what comes to mind for me is standard learning practice. That's really interesting. I mean, that's probably, and that connotation uh, for that situation, yeah. People mm-hmm. probably throw that out. Okay. Um, for what my brain was thinking for is speech-language pathologist. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. But standard learning practice is absolutely an acronym or SLP for that as well. I was never going to get like, that. But the linguistic component, I mean, language, linguistic, and similar. Oh. You weren't that far for this one. Yeah. I make you feel better Good a little job. bit. You, it's okay. You get, <laughs> half a, you get half a point for that one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the show. Um, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Kelsey, Brian, Dennis and Brian. (laughs) Thanks for having both Brians.
Thank you uh, so much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Cool. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. My co-host today was comedian Brian Bargainier, host of Public Access and Chill. My guests were Dr. Brian Monison olson Kelsey Hall, and Dennis Spencer. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland, and support for online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is provided by the Emmerich Labs in the Polymer Science Department. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page and SoundCloud page to listen to old episodes or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. Stick around for WMUA news coming right up.